estimation, they are taking on an issue that is vast in scope and deep in its implications. And the issues surrounding it sort of abound. You have to consider God's sovereignty, his infinite wisdom, his power, man's responsibility, man's capability, free will, divine justice, divine mercy, divine love, human pride. Many things must be thoroughly integrated and thought through. Many people would just rather leave the problem on a shelf uh, to say, ah, predestination, we'll put that on the shelf and call it mystery and not even deal with it. But the Bible has a lot to say about it. Uh, so it must be important. There are, uh, to use a scriptural phrase, secret things which belong to the Lord, but this isn't one of them, except perhaps in the way it works in the mind of God, which is, of course, way beyond us. But this is here for us, to benefit us. And that's why it's written. One of the benefits of approaching Sunday sermons expositionally and going verse by verse through the Bible is that we cannot avoid issues like this or just skirt around them or uh, you have to take them head on. So if you're struggling with these concepts, welcome to the company of great saints, past and present, who have grappled with these issues. It's good for you. And it is in the Bible for a reason. So, the Bible is an important word there uh, when we talk about that. Our interest and objective is that we be biblical on these matters, not committed to a theological system, except as it is biblical. That's what we're looking for. So not going beyond Scripture, but not running away from Scripture either when it deals with something as clearly as it does this. So election, predestination, rightly and biblically understood is one of the most comforting and beautiful doctrines in all of the Bible. So if we agree to follow the Bible where it leads, then humility will end up in a really good place, mentally and spiritually. So in our study, we've come to the issue of human responsibility, which touches on the question of man's will. If God elects, how does God find fault? That is exactly the question in Romans chapter 9, verse 19. But 9.19 flows out of 9.17 and 18, a passage we haven't looked at yet. And that deals with the side of election that is most sobering, what the Bible here calls hardening. As God can freely bestow saving mercy on certain sinners, rescuing them from eternal misery, others are not elected to receive mercy, and some are even hardened by God in their own sin. Why would God do that? Well, we'll see as we move forward, but the answer, remarkably, is basically the same answer as for why God is merciful to some. Romans 9.17 begins with the word for. Four takes us back to the preceding statement in verse 16, which is a conclusion we looked at last time based on Paul's quote of Exodus 33:19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Then verse 16 says, So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And so verse 17 in the example of, uh, is the example of a man who did not receive mercy. And again, in verse 17, it says, The scripture says to Pharaoh, Paul is going to reach back into Exodus to the writings of Moses and to the most well-known of all events that would be familiar to his fellow Jews, which is the Exodus itself, and a very important person in those events, which is Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh, you will recall, was stubborn. Stubborn to the point that defies rationality. Stubborn to the point that he destroyed his own kingdom and ruined his administration over his foolishness. He wrecked his nation rather than accede to the demands of a God who showed himself more powerful over and over and over again. 
Why was he so stubborn? Because God wanted it that way. Romans 9.17 is a purpose statement, again quoting Exodus. This time, Romans 9.17 is quoting Exodus 9.16. You can get that confused very easily. But he says there in verse 17, The scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. And indeed, that's exactly what happened and has happened. Why did God put Pharaoh on his throne in the first place? Why have a man like that be Pharaoh when God determined to free his people? Couldn't God have arranged the order of events in history so that the kind of man that ended up on the throne of Egypt would be a weak, uh, vacillating sort of fellow that would cower at the very first sign of a miracle and let the people go? Couldn't he have done that? God says he raised up this particular man, quote, to demonstrate my power in you that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. That's the reason. Two weeks ago, we did an extensive study of the word righteousness as it applies to God, and we concluded that divine righteousness can be defined as, quote, God's commitment always to act for the glory of his own name. And that's what he's doing right here. We said it glorified God to freely bestow mercy on undeserving, even uninterested sinners. Electing mercy puts God's love and mercy and grace on display in spectacular fashion. When Chris was reading Ephesians chapter 2 earlier, I hope you picked up on the fact that it says in that text about our wicked nature and God making us alive in Christ for the purpose of displaying us in the ages to come as examples of God's grace to whatever beings or creatures might exist in the future. We know, uh, we who know God's mercy in our own lives are in a perpetual state of awe that he would love us and save us. And that glorifies him. Indeed, all the glory and salvation goes to him. Well, God is just as glorified in the doom of sinners his justice, and in Pharaoh's case, his power, is clearly seen in Egypt's overthrow. You know, the United States just trounced the little country across the world, Afghanistan. Where does the glory and credit go when you read the newspapers or turn on the TV? Where does the glory go? What do all the people, what do they all say? American power, American technology, American personnel. We are a superpower, right? And we are. Well, in a human sense, and it has been ably shown that we are. The Exodus is the story of deliverance such as the world has never seen before or since. And in the 15th century BC, Egypt was the superpower, and the Israelites were a weaponless mass of slaves under Egypt's control. Now, if Moses came to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said, Moses, you know, I'm sure we can work something out. We'll let a certain number of your people go now, but we'll need to uh, transition you to freedom, if you will, and it would be too hard on our economy to let you all go right now, but I'm sure we can make some kind of arrangements. Let's work out a system where you can maybe buy out your freedom over a period of time, and we can send an advance group to Palestine for you, and we'll work all that out. He could have been that kind of a guy. Who would get the glory if that happened? Pharaoh. Probably a nice guy. God might get a little credit for the timing, a, a kind of a thank you for your divine providence kind of a situation. But that's not what God wanted to do. God wanted to display another part of his glory, his wrath against sin and disobedience. And he chose to make Pharaoh, this particular Pharaoh, an object lesson 
a divine object lesson. Why? As a demonstration of his divine nature. So let's go back to Exodus and uh, see how this happens. Exodus chapter 3 and 4, in those chapters, God speaks to Moses and calls him to his mission as a deliverer of his people. And you're all familiar with that if you've seen all the films about that and stuff like that. Maybe even read it in the Bible. But interestingly, Moses is not sent without an awareness of what's going to transpire. God tells him exactly what's going to happen. The Lord lays out for him how he will be received and what will be necessary to do in order to deliver the people. And if you look at chapter 3, verse um, 18, he says, They will pay heed to what you say, and you, the elders of Israel, will come to the king of Egypt, and you will say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So now please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not permit you to go except under compulsion. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the miracles which I shall do in the midst of it, and after that he will let you go. And I will grant this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, and it shall be that when you go, you will not go empty-handed, but every woman shall ask of her neighbor and the woman who lives in her house articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing, and you will put them on your sons and daughters. Thus you will plunder the Egyptian. So he not only tells Moses that he's not going to be heard, he tells Moses uh, great miracles are going to be needed to break the will of Pharaoh so that he will let them go. And he says, when you go out, you're not going to go up handed You're just going to walk up to an Egyptian and say, give me all your gold and we'll just give it to you. Anything to get rid of you. And thus you'll plunder the Egyptians. So there's not going to be any real surprises if God is taken at his word. Well, Moses, he's a man of faith, but he's not quite so sure. So in chapter 4, verse 1, Moses says, uh, what if they will not believe me? So God gives him some simple signs that he can perform to convince his own people that he is actually the man that God has called. And in chapter 4, verse 19, God tells Moses it's time to go to Egypt, and God reminds him once more how this is going to happen. Chapter 4, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders which I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So I said to you, Let my son go, that he may serve me, but you have refused to let him go. Behold, I will kill your son, your firstborn. So all that's already laid out. Well, before Moses even starts, it's all told him what's going to happen. Now, who's going to harden Pharaoh's heart according to God? God, right. He says, I will do that. Before Moses ever sets foot in Egypt, God tells Moses that Pharaoh will not respond because God will harden his heart. God will make him inflexible. God will make him unresponsive to every prompting of men, every prompting of events, every prompting of, of reason. God will harden his heart. So in chapter 5, Moses um, says his peace to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh is not impressed. Chapter 5, verse 2, Pharaoh says, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord. That's a really important phrase. I do not know the Lord. Well, he and a lot of other people are about to get an introduction by means of ten incredible plagues. But first, Pharaoh makes their slavery harsher. You know the story? They had to make bricks with straw, and he says, now you guys have to go cut the straw for yourselves to make the bricks, and it makes it even worse, and the people go to Moses, and they grumble, and Moses gets really upset, he goes back to the Lord, and he says, uh, this isn't working quite the way you told me it was going to work, because um, he's not trusting in the future part, this he's still to come, and he's asking God about it, and God speaks in chapter 6, and notice 
as we read this part, the emphasis on God's name and that what he is about to do is a self-revelation. They will know him better when they have seen their deliverance. Chapter 6, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For under compulsion he shall let them go, and under compulsion he shall drive them out of his land. God spoke further to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. Now, when you see um, the word Lord with all capital letters, that is God's sacred name that he reveals in Scripture. Um, in Hebrew, it's, well, in English letters in Hebrew, it's Y-H-W-H, which sometimes you see pronounced Yahweh or Jehovah or something like that. Jehovah is a very anglicized form of that. But that's the sacred name of God. So he says, I am the Lord, and I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as God Almighty. But my, by my name, Lord, I did not make myself known to them. And I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they sojourned. And furthermore, I have heard the groaning of the sons of Israel because the Egyptians are holding them in bondage. And I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the sons of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you from my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from the burden of the Egyptians. And I will bring you to the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. He says, I will establish my covenant, verse 4. I will remember my covenant, verse 5. I will be your God, verse 7. You will fulfill the promises of the land. So in chapter 7, it's time to see Pharaoh again. And um, Moses goes to Pharaoh. Chapter 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I make you as God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you. Your brother Aaron shall speak to Pharaoh, that he let the sons of Israel go out of his land. But... I will harden Pharaoh's heart that I may multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. When Pharaoh will not listen to you, then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my hosts, my people, the sons of Israel from the land of Egypt by great judgments. And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the sons of Israel from their midst. So who will harden Pharaoh's heart? God will, verse 3. And notice in verse 5, it is the Egyptians now who shall know that I am the Lord. They will know who he is. So the first sign is given to Pharaoh um, in verses 9 and following. Moses' staff is turned into a serpent, but since Pharaoh's court magicians can do their own version of that trick, verse 13 says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. Next, a huge miracle, miracle occurs. The Nile is turned to blood. Now the Nile... If you know anything about Egypt, the Nile is everything in Egypt. It's their absolute life. If, the, if there's something wrong with the Nile, everybody dies. I mean, it's that kind of a situation. And he turns the Nile to blood. Not only the Nile, but every stream feeding into the Nile. Not only the streams, but every well that's dug. Not only every well, but if you have a jar of water sitting on a shelf and you get it down, it's blood. I mean, it just everything is polluted. Chapter 7, verse 22. But the magicians of Egypt did the same with their secret arts. They did something that looked like that too. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Chapter 8, the plague of frogs comes. Now this is so horrible it gets Pharaoh's attention because there's just frogs literally everywhere. And in chapter 8, verse 8, Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron and said, Entreat the Lord that he may remove the frogs from me and from my people and that I will let the people go that they may sacrifice to the Lord. 
Moses said to Pharaoh, The honor is yours to tell me. When shall I entreat for you and your servants and your people that the frogs be destroyed from you and your houses that they may be left only in the Nile? Moses says, You tell me when you want them to leave and I'll do it that way. Verse 10, Then he said, Tomorrow. So he said, May it be according to your word that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. Won't be by chance. You pick the time. And that's what happens. But verse 15, When Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Next we have um, gnats or flies, verses uh, 18. The magicians tried with their secret arts to bring forth gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God! But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Next, uh, after that, insects. And this is so bad, Pharaoh calls for Moses, and he says he will let them go. But then in verse 31 of chapter 8, says the Lord did as Moses asked, remove the swarms of insects from Pharaoh and from his servants and from his people. Not one remained, but Pharaoh hardened his heart. This time also he did not let the people go. Another plague, a pestilence on all the livestock. But only the livestock of the Egyptians. If you have Jewish cattle, they live. Or Jewish goats, you know, but the Egyptians' cattle die. Verse 7 um, of chapter 9, says Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead, but the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people go. And then boils, incredibly painful sores all over men and beasts, all the Egyptian men and beasts, not on the Jewish men and beasts. And in verse 11 of chapter 9, it says, the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. They were hurting so bad. They were, I don't know, they were in the sauna or something just trying to get relief. They were terrible. Breaking out with sores, um, so there were boils on the magicians as well as on all the Egyptians. And then verse 12, the Lord, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. So his own men are pleading with him, oh, you're not doing something about you. No, the Lord hardened his heart. Now, you will notice that this hardening of Pharaoh is described in several ways. Before the events happen, twice God said that he would harden Pharaoh's heart. Then in the narrative that is actually going on, it sometimes says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Sometimes it's a passive voice. It just says his heart was hardened. It doesn't say who the actor was that hardened it. And sometimes it says Pharaoh hardened his heart himself. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now, here in chapter 9 is where Paul draws his quote that he uses in Romans. Romans chapter 9. So Paul does not quote one of the hardening portions, interestingly enough, but he quotes a purpose statement for Pharaoh's existence at all. And he quotes from this section in which God says he is acting for his own namesake, which means God is acting righteously, but he also um, holds Pharaoh accountable for his actions. So look at chapter 9, verse 13. And follow along with me. This is where Paul draws his quote from. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed for this cause I have allowed you to remain. Here's Paul's verse. Verse 16. For this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, 
You've exalted yourself against my people by not letting them go. You exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. So that verse 16 there is the quote Paul uses in Romans. So God says, I could have destroyed you and all your people with pestilence and cut you off from the earth and then my people would just walk out of Egypt. But I let you live. Why? Number one, in order to show my power. Number two, to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. And if you read the rest of the time, the Moses time, you find out that all the nations around there knew what had happened. And they were all terrified of the Israelites because they knew that God had overthrown a superpower. The one they were all afraid of. So God's name was proclaimed. And of course, it's still proclaimed. Everybody practically on earth knows the story. Almost everybody. I mean, it's just still an astounding event. In other words, God acted for his own purposes. Pharaoh being an instrument of divine purpose. Moldable according to God's need. But still, Pharaoh's personal accountability is confirmed. Look at verse 27 of chapter 9. Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. And the Lord is right, the Lord is the righteous one, and I and my people are the wicked ones. That's interesting. And it is sin. And Moses confirms this when Pharaoh swings back again and is hard again. Verse 34 says, When Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. So he sinned, he hardened, just as the Lord had spoken. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may perform these signs among them. Are you getting confused? Okay, hang on. Who's doing this hardening thing? Here God gives another purpose um, he has in mind for causing such a great deliverance. He has said that Israel may know. He has said that the Egyptians might know and that God's name might be proclaimed throughout all the earth. And now in verse 2 of chapter 10, he says that, here's the purpose, you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I made a mockery of the Egyptians and how I performed my signs among them that you may know that I am the Lord. It's for future generations as well. So, it continues. Chapter 10, verse 20, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 10, verse 27, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Chapter 11, verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. So what's really going on? Let's go back to Romans chapter 9 and sort this out theologically. It seems clear that Paul selected Exodus 9.16 as a summary of of all that transpires with Pharaoh from Exodus chapter 4 all the way through chapter 14, which we don't have time to go through every point there. But he does that to show that God's activity is grounded in his own purpose, not the plans or the actions of men. It suited God's purpose that Pharaoh be uncommonly, foolishly stubborn. And so he was. The theological conclusion of all this stuff is in Romans chapter 9, verse 18. And he says, So then, here's his conclusion, he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. It's God's choice. Now this is scary stuff 
to some people that God should be God and that our destiny should be in his hands. It's not scary to me. It's my only hope for salvation. So I like this. I would not have come to Christ without God's electing mercy, without his overruling my wicked nature and my own heart. Because I wanted to do it my way. I mean, I didn't mind God being there as long as I could do whatever I wanted. People say that Romans 9.18 is contrary to God's love somehow, that he would save everybody if he could. That is not so. God's love is amazing and infinite in its blessings to those who receive it. But no one deserves it. No one. And if you don't get divine love and grace and mercy and salvation, you only get what you deserve. God doesn't owe anybody salvation, only condemnation. That he saves anybody is incredible. So he cannot be in any way condemned or looked down on or taken down off his throne for giving some people justice and giving other people mercy. That is his right. So Paul says in verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? If God hardened Pharaoh, then we can't really blame Pharaoh. Now notice what Paul does not say in answer to the verse 19 question. He is not going to say, oh, you know, you really misunderstood this whole thing. All I meant was that God looks ahead and he sees what people will do and he chooses based on something in them or hardens them based on something he foresees that they're going to do. God's will is not sovereign. Really, our will is sovereign. He doesn't say that. Here's his real answer, verse 20. On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded does not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does, the potter have, does not the potter have right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? A potter can make out of one lump of clay a vessel to be used to carry some sacred thing in the temple of God or he can use it to make a toilet out of it. He can do anything he wants with the same lump. Because it's his right. And God has the right to do what he wants with his creation. That's pretty hard. If God chooses one vessel to reveal the glory of his grace in kindness and mercy, and another vessel he chooses, chooses to show the glory of his holy just wrath, it is entirely just and correct that he do so. And he is righteous because in both ways he is true to his own marvelous nature. Now, why does he still find fault? That's the question. Because if we are vessels of wrath, we still bear the full responsibility for our own sins. Now this gets really important, so hang on with me for a second. Human beings are by nature children of wrath. That's what Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3 says. By nature, children of wrath. The problem comes when you start to think that everybody's sort of neutral, and God arbitrarily looks down and starts assigning eternal destinies to people. Well, there's just these people, and he just kind of made us these people, and he's picking some to save, and he's picking some to throw into hell. That seems really mean. Well, of course it is. That's wrong. But that's not the real scenario. That is the, that is the erroneous scenario people bring to it. God is not looking at neutral, innocent creatures and assigning some to the saved group and some to the doomed group. 
He is looking at one big group of traitors, rebels, sinners, enemies of all that he is and all that he stands for. That's what he's looking at. And he didn't make them that way. They chose to go that way. See, their will is involved. They chose to be that. We chose to be that. And looking at that group, he chooses out of great love and mercy to save some. Others he leaves to their own doom. Pharaoh was anti-God in his heart. He breathed pride and wickedness. He was devoted to his own sin. God simply held him in that position for God's own glory. Just confirmed and affirmed his stubbornness for his own glory. The sin was Pharaoh's arising from his own heart. God simply channeled it for his own purposes, which he can do. So Pharaoh may have on his own let the Israelites go for his own selfish reasons. He might have done that. Hey, this is going to wreck my kingdom. I want to still have a powerful kingdom. I'll let him go. That wouldn't be righteous. It wouldn't be holy. It wouldn't be Godward. It wouldn't be worship. It wouldn't be anything good. He might just let him go for his own reason. Well, God was able to let him do that. So God hardened his heart to display his own glory in a sinful man. But Pharaoh never would have repented or loved God without electing mercy without God's choice. Pharaoh was passed over for that. As an enemy of God, God was free to use him for his own purpose and glory to show himself powerful by a super miraculous deliverance. In actuality, that sinners live and enjoy, even for a brief time on earth, any of their pleasures is an example of God's great patience. So consider this, Paul says, verse 22 of Romans chapter 9. What if God, and this is what he's saying, what if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? God would do that. God was patient with wicked. He could just wipe out everybody now, just like he told Pharaoh. I could just put a pestilence and destroy you all now. God could do that, but he's patient. Two of the reasons that are given are, one, to demonstrate his wrath and make his and the second, to make his power known. God could blast people who fall into sin in one sweep, just wipe them all out. Like he did with Noah's flood, he can do that. He has done it. But he will be glorified in judgment on the great day of reckoning because of his patience. Sinners are already without excuse. Romans 1.20, remember way back when we were in Romans chapter 1? said they're, they're without excuse. They know who God is, they know all about him, they just hate him. They just don't want to worship him. So they're without excuse. But judgment itself will be all the more vivid when people have to account for the long years they had ample, ample opportunity to see their own sin, ample opportunity to come to God, ample opportunity to become truly thankful, ample opportunity to repent, and they will stand before Him having wasted precious opportunities for salvation. And the reason they don't come to Him is their own wickedness, not predestination. It's their own nature. But there's more, verse 23. And he did so in order that he might make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among the Gentiles. So God's patience is not primarily to display his wrath, but to make known the riches of the glory upon vessels of mercy. 
So all the while, sinners are going on in their own lusts and desires. Out of their midst, God calls some for, for a destiny of glory and blessing. So there's just the same corrupt and rotten sea of humanity which deserves only terror and flood, and God transforms and heals and exalts and blesses some of those people with new life. The reason they, they come is predestination, not their own merits or good works. So there's an interesting relationship here in the use of the verb prepared that you see in verse 22 and verse 23. In verse 23, concerning vessels of mercy, it says these he prepared beforehand. It's an active verb. God is the preparer of those people for salvation. In verse 22, concerning vessels of wrath, the verb is not active, it's passive. It just says vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In fact, in, in Greek, the passive can, that form of the verb can be either passive or middle. Passive would mean it's being acted upon. Middle means it's a self-acting thing. Vessels of wrath, self-prepared for destruction. So the suggestion seems to be in that difference there that the vessels of wrath are sort of self-prepared, if you will. They've put themselves in this condition. They're doomed. God doesn't have to elect them to damnation. They're sending themselves that way. But out of that group, he does prepare some vessels of mercy for his own grace to receive his love and to be saved eternally. Because all men are self-prepared for destruction. God reaches down and rescue some. And God's wrath on vessels of wrath makes mercy all the more wondrous and appreciated. And vessels of mercy see in vessels of wrath what they deserve. And so God's great patience in enduring vessels of wrath so that out of them he can call forth vessels of mercy and save them and love them eternally comes to be. All of it is God's doing. All of it is to make his glory known. Many people hate God for this. For his justice. And that, that just shows how depraved men are. Who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Next week we'll finish Romans chapter 9. We're going to tie all of this back into Paul's main subject, which is Jewish unbelief. He's explaining why the Jews rejected Jesus as Messiah. That's the basic, basic theme here. And next week we'll make a lot of time available for questions and answers on the subject of divine election. So write them down and bring them, and we will deal out of the scriptures with your questions. Okay, we'll just have the microphones out. We'll take questions. We don't do that very often. In fact, never. But we'll do it next Sunday, okay? Because it's an important subject. It's important that you understand it. So come prepared. All right? Let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll sing that last hymn there. Father, we just thank you for your electing mercy. Indeed, we know where we were headed. And none of us who really knows you can look at ourselves and say, ah, oh, we were smarter than those other people. We, we chose God and we followed him and we really need pats on the back because we were so wise and so good. And we know that's not it. We know that somehow you made us alive to yourself and opened our eyes and called us to yourself. And for that, we give you great thanksgiving. Why you chose us and not others, we don't know. But we sure are thankful. In Christ's name we pray, amen.